Every year on August the 15th, the global news media briefly recalls this date as the anniversary of the end of World War II. But is it the appropriate date for a commemoration in 2015? Or will the world end up remembering a reality which it prefers to forget? On August 15, 1945, in Japan, Emperor Hirohito made his first-ever scheduled broadcast of the Japanese people, speaking in a high-flown form of Japanese which many of his 90 million listeners did not fully understand. While Hirohito's subjects were shocked to hear his voice, they still managed to get his message. Even though the emperor carefully avoided using the words defeat or surrender, he still sought to justify the war, saying, We declared war on America and Britain out of our sincere desire to ensure Japan's self-preservation and the stabilization of East Asia. It being far from our thoughts to infringe upon the sovereignty of other nations or to embark upon territorial aggrandizement. Hirohito then indirectly indicated to the nation that Japan had lost the war by saying, Despite the best that has been done by everyone, despite the gallant fighting of military and naval forces, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage, while the general trends of the world have all turned against her interest. Hirohito's speech also foreshadowed the development of Japan's historical myopia and its unique sense of being a nuclear victim because the enemy has begun to deploy a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is indeed incalculable. Hirohito's speech was not broadcast live around the world. There might have been a whole host of fresh problems if it had been. There was no text messaging, no mobile phones, no internet to immediately carry the news overseas. Come to that, there were no telex connections, no international phone connections, and no foreign correspondence in Tokyo to quickly convey the news about Hirohito's speech to Japan's enemies. The world heard about Hirohito's speech much later. But in New York and London, to be sure, there was rejoicing. The US and UK governments quickly let it be known on August the 14th, 15th that Japan had finally notified neutral Swiss and Swedish intermediaries in Bern and Stockholm that it had accepted the Allied definition of unconditional surrender. So hundreds of thousands of American and British citizens erupted onto the streets of their cities in joyful anticipation that the war was at long last nearly over. But for hundreds of millions of Asians, any such ending still remained in the future. Anxiety and insecurity remained widespread and constant. This was particularly so wherever the Japanese military was still in control, as they were in large parts of China, in Korea, in Vietnam, and in numerous islands in Southeast Asia and across the Pacific. Here in Hong Kong, the end of the Japanese occupation was still days away as Admiral William Harcourt and the Royal Navy raced to assert British sovereignty before the arrival of nationalist forces. 
In northeastern China, in the region known as Manchuria, and in the Soviet Far East, 1.5 million Soviet troops, spearheaded by some 5,000 tanks, were just starting their offensive to destroy Japanese control over Manchukuo, North Korea, Sakhalin, and the Kuril Islands. This operation only began on August the 9th after the Soviet Union had belatedly declared war on Japan on August the 8th. While the Russian offensive got going, the planned American offensive against Japan was coming to a screeching halt as Operation Downfall, with planned amphibious landings first on Kyushu and then on Honshu being abandoned. Most of the 872,000 U.S. troops due to be transferred from Europe to Asia instead returned to the United States. However, nuclear experts breathed a sigh of relief since a third atomic bomb was not immediately available for use if the Japanese had still refused to surrender. But the stunning truth remains. Japan nearly did refuse to surrender. Often since 1945, it has been argued that Japan was just waiting to surrender, that a mere demonstration of an atomic explosion would have neatly wrapped up the Second World War without the horror experienced in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the Japanese historical record clearly indicates that the situation was never that simple. When a high-level American committee briefly discussed this issue on May the 31st, 1945, the arguments against any such nuclear demonstration were clearly seen to be more pertinent than any in favour of it. There was the problem of finding a suitable piece of deserted neutral territory. There would be the difficulty of arranging a truce in wartime so that both sides could attend the demonstration without fighting each other. Even if that problem was hurdled, the Japanese might seek to intercept the bomber and try to shoot it down. Another possibility was that once the Japanese knew where the demonstration would take place, they might have moved Allied prisoners of war into the agreed target zone. Two other arguments against offering a demonstration carried even more weight. There was the fear that the atom bomb still might not work, a fear of failure not entirely dissipated until Hiroshima and Nagasaki had actually been bombed. If the bombs did not work as expected in the demonstration, the failure would convince the Japanese militarists that the Allies were desperate to end the war and Japan was correct to continue fighting. Secondly, it was argued that even if the atomic demonstration was successful, the Japanese militarists might still refuse to be impressed precisely on the grounds that this was only a demonstration. <laughs> that committee spoke truer than they knew. When the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, some leading Japanese militarists did indeed refuse to be impressed, arguing in reverse that this was probably a demonstration bomb and that the Americans probably did not have any more. Other military officers tried to find more fanciful explanations for what had happened, such as the Americans somehow managing to seed the atmosphere over Hiroshima with explosive substances before blowing them up altogether. It actually took two and a half days for the military to finally accept the conclusion immediately reached by civilian experts that it was indeed an atomic bomb. 
The truth is that one crucial aspect of Japanese history has been consistently disregarded. Japan should have surrendered long before the Americans completed the development of the atomic bomb, but failures of civilian and military leadership kept Japan fighting for an already lost cause. Once Saipan fell in mid 1944 and Prime Minister Hideki Tojo resigned to take responsibility for that failure, men around Hirohito knew the war was lost, but no one acted to wind up the lost cause. In the desperate battles for Iwo Jima and Okinawa, the military sought to perfect kamikaze techniques. The threatened invasion of Kyushu under Operation Downfall was to be met with mass tactics of national suicide. Against this background, the Hiroshima atomic bomb still did not produce an instant consensus at the highest levels of the Japanese polity that there was no alternative but to surrender. Even when the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, some of the leading militarists were still skeptical about the threat it posed. For a few outspoken civilians, like Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo, Nagasaki proved that there was now no alternative to surrender. But War Minister Anami Korechka was equally adamant that the war must continue. The all powerful six member Supreme Council for the Direction of the War, which was meeting in Tokyo when the news from Nagasaki came in, was split down the middle and remained so. Foreign Minister Togo, together with Prime Minister Kantaro Suzuki and Minister for the Navy Admiral Mitsumaso Yonai, maintained that Japan should accept the unconditional surrender demanded by the Potsdam Proclamation, provided the Emperor's constitutional position was unaffected. War Minister Anami, together with Chief of the Army General Staff Yushijiro Imezo and Chief of the Naval General Staff Admiral Somu Toyoda, stipulated three additional conditions for surrender. There was to be no Allied occupation of Japan, Japan alone would supervise its own disarmament, Japan alone would conduct any war crimes trials. <laughs> This was, of course, tantamount to stressing that Japan had not been defeated. It would have been regarded by the Allies as effectively rejecting unconditional surrender. Eventually, after the Emperor's initial unprecedented intervention in a Supreme War Council discussion on August the 10th, a message went from Tokyo through Bern and Stockholm indicating Japanese acceptance of unconditional surrender provided the Emperor's position was retained. President Harry Truman quickly sent an astute reply which allowed him to both sustain the position of unconditional surrender yet imply his acceptance of the Japanese condition. August the 11th, 12th, and 13th went by without any Japanese reply. In Tokyo, seeking consensus from divergent views had all begun over again. The Supreme Council for the Direction of the War remained divided. Younger military officers became restive, insisting that the Allied ultimatum must be rejected. Rumours of a military coup against the government were rife. On August the 14th, B 29s returned to the skies over Tokyo to drop millions of leaflets giving the details of the diplomatic exchanges over surrender, details which had been totally withheld from the controlled Japanese media. After being shown one of these, the Emperor agreed that he should make a second intervention in favour of accepting the Allied reply, urging his top advisers to 
bear the unbearable? An imperial rescript was prepared. Hirohito made two recordings of it to be broadcast the next day. A top general in the Imperial Guards was assassinated. The would-be coup makers frantically searched parts of the Imperial Palace looking for the Emperor's recording which they wanted to destroy so that Japan could go on fighting. But Chamberlain's had successfully hidden the discs. Crucially, War Minister Anami refused to join with the coup makers. He simply could not disobey the Emperor's decision. But he also did not want to take part in the nation's surrender, so he committed seppuku, ritual stomach-slitting suicide, before Hirohito's broadcast went to air. Most of the would-be coup makers, plus quite a few senior military officers, dismayed at the war ending in this way, also committed suicide in the next few days, some in front of the walls of the Imperial Palace. So amidst all this turmoil in Tokyo, on the night of August the 14th, there was an attempted military coup by some die-hard fanatics who sought to take possession of the Emperor's recorded broadcast and prevent it being broadcast to the nation so that Japan could literally fight to the death. So, on August the 15th, after Hirohito's speech was broadcast, the end of World War II came in sight. But the end of World War II had not yet arrived. Today, it has still not arrived. In the immediate aftermath of Hirohito's address, there was some Japanese dissent against ending the war. But by the time General Douglas MacArthur arrived to supervise the surrender and occupation, Japanese discipline had been restored. The massive Soviet Red Army's invasion of northeast China and North Korea, territories Japan had illegally occupied, got underway. But the fighting continued into September as the Russians invaded and the Japanese army defended territory that was then legitimately Japanese, Japan's northern territories, the Kuril Islands close to Hokkaido. As a result of this Russian aggression, Russia and Japan have never signed a peace treaty with each other and are unlikely to do so in the next few months. So, legally, technically, on August the 15th, 2015, World War II will be not yet over. <laughs>